Welcome to the quarter to three movie podcast for a really old movie called 12 Monkeys that we are watching because it is the winner of this year's Make Us Watch Whatever You Want Fun Drive, Fundraiser, Drive, Razor, whatever it was, both. I am Tom Chick, and to discuss 12 Monkeys, I've brought along Christian Moransky. He used to call me James. And with a 12 Monkeys tagline, this is like, what, 15 years in the making? No, wait, 25 almost years in the making, Kelly Wand. Finally, a Terry Gilliam movie about eccentrics that's depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Seems a little bit like low-hanging fruit, Kelly Wand. you have anything that's from a little higher on the tree? Time travel trolls you with hair. Ah! (laughs) And now what if I climbed to the very tippy top of that tree, Kelly Wan? What tagline would be up there? Go to the 90s, tie Madeline Stowe to a bed, have a few laughs. Wait a minute. How did Ryan Gosling get involved? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. He's hard to do. I was trying to do walk-in the other night because I watched. I'll tell you next week. Kelly Wan, everybody does walk-in. He's hard. It's a knock-knock joke. Oh, my God, but that was your walk-in? Yeah, I know. That's That's the worst walk-in I've ever heard. I know, it's terrible. And in my head, it sounds fine until I say it. And then I go, wait, something, there's like a line down or something. I think Kelly could do do like obscure characters. I think Kelly could do a better John Seda probably than a walk-in right now. I mean, he he pulls the most obscure characters out and everybody's like, wow. Yeah, that Meryl Streep impression he does, because nobody knows that. Shut up. No, don't. (laughs) Uh, All right, let's talk some 12 Monkeys. Dingus, don't spoil it, because there might be people listening who are like, oh, yeah, I meant to watch that this weekend, and I didn't get to it. It's only been 24 years. I'll listen to the podcast, but uh, once I find out. So what would you tell them, Dingus, if you didn't – to not spoil 12 Monkeys? All right, this week we saw 12 Monkeys, also known as 12 Monkeys. A 1995 American Noir science fiction listener choice movie about the lasting rewards of volunteer work. It was directed by Terry Gilliam and written by David Webb Peoples and Janet Peoples. Um, Boo! (laughs) Based on the short film La Jetée, which which means the jetty, I'll have you know. It also has a very loose claim to being a film, by the way. It's a camera pointed at pictures. <laughs> Good point. And film exposed, right? Okay. Exactly. Uh, it stars Bruce Willis, Brad Pitt, Madeline Stowe, Brrr. John Seda, who uh, I always think of the uh, pop star John Cicada whenever I look at his name. So John Seda, J- David Morse. Wait, there's a pop Matt. star named John Cicada, like the bug? Yeah, yeah kind of. Uh, it might be pronounced John Cicada. Cicada's probably better. I should say John Cicada. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt Ross, who, uh, well, anyway, Christopher Maloney, Christopher Plummer, and Chris Markinson. 12 Monkeys is rated R for violence and language. Um, and I guess if it had been rated what? nowadays, it would also be rated R for rude gestures. Hmm. Given because we're in a post Black Panther world, and Black Panther had a rating based on one rude gesture. Uh, Kelly, one, what do you think of that? Is there anything missing from that uh, that ratings? Um, 
she was doing it affectionately, so I would have for Black Panther, I think it was too harsh a rating. But for Twelve Monkeys, I would advise parents there is some improvised dentistry, uh, improper use of Brad Pitt's eye, World War One, <laughs> monkeys as construction workers, and graffiti. <laughs> The 12 Monkeys is really old, so it doesn't have a Metacritic rating, but somehow really? it is on Rotten Tomatoes with uh, 88% positive reviews. Uh, here's what's even weirder. Kill it's Bill. on CinemaScore. <laughs> I have no idea how that no. works. I don't, I don't know how they get something like but it, it's, it's the 1995. I mean, there's a TV show, 12 Monkeys, so when I yeah, saw it, I thought, I oh, that must that. be – when I saw it, I thought that must be the TV show. But no, it's the, it's the 1995 movie, 12 Monkeys, on CinemaScore. And as you can imagine, idiots were like, uh, yeah, B. Monkeys? Mm-hmm. So you got a B on CinemaScore. Because yeah. we have a listener named Chris Webb who guessed that if if the, what idiots today would say would be a C-, minus because, quote, it's too confusing, and, quote, I thought Charlton Heston was going to be in this. Well, thing is, idiots aren't what they used to be. These are 1995 <laughs> idiots, you see. We've come a long way. Also, he uh, is a C minus. Twelve Monkeys opened not even in the top 20, which uh, is a little bit uh, it's a little bit misleading because it just didn't have a wide release. Presumably, its first weekend it only made 184 thousand dollars over its lifetime. It certainly made more than that. But I'm guessing this was just this was a, a, a slower rolled out release. Uh, over multiple weeks. So it opened on, wow. uh, let's see, what beat it on its opening weekend? Uh, Toy Story's sixth week made $19 million that week, whereas 12 Monkeys just made 184000 Toy so, Story, that's a Barry Levinson movie with uh, Robin Williams in it. We should be so lucky. Well, Brad Pitt wasn't famous yet. Maybe. Is that true? Was, Come on. It was right after 95? Was he famous then? Well, he was famous enough to... Be in this, but not like scare Bruce Willis or something. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, oh, I'm in a movie with Brad Pitt. It's a Brad Pitt movie. Like, right, like I'm going to be upstaged by this. I'm going to be upstaged by a celebrity. Yeah, he did not think that, right? Although, in a well, way. I think actually, I think you're right because I think, um, I think Josh, Josh Lublin or another listener who wrote in did say that this was. Uh, this is before Brad Pitt was really famous. I disagree was, with that because it's it's, it's before it's Legends the same of the Fall. Year. So look, it's, it's the, the same, same year as Seven. No, no, it's, it's after Legends of the Fall. It's the same year that Seven came out. He'd yeah. already done Interview with a Vampire. He'd already done uh, his uh, uh, California. He's arguably a lead in that with uh, David Duchovny. He'd already oh, done A yeah, River California. Runs Through It. Uh, I think he was pretty established at this point. Now, certainly Those not. Those are all artsy movies. Well, well Josh, uh, Josh. Interview with the Vampire is an artsy movie, Kelly. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Neil Jordan. California, California, a dopey serial killer movie. That's artsy, huh? Because that's it's spelled artsy, with a K. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Duchovny, come on, that's super artsy. So I guess Josh's point He's is that vampire. he was, and he does say that he was in Legends and Interview. But he says he was on his way to being a big okay. star, but it was possible to dismiss him as a pretty boy. And Twelve Monkeys showed he could be a lot more than that. Oh yeah, all well. those he wasn't the lead either. He wasn't the lead in this either. He was still wasn't up to leading a movie by himself yet. Right. Sure. Everything he just said. Tom Cruise was the interview with the vampire. Wait, we're getting ahead of ourselves because some listeners oh, might gosh. not know what the events of the movie are. They might need oh, them synopsized, true. Kelly. That's Warren. where they're stuck. 
Yeah. <laughs> they, they wanted to listen to this. Never mind. Now, Kelly, one, I don't know what the uh, I don't know what scheme you used to title the synopses back in 1995. So, what would you call a synopsis of the 1995 Twelve Monkeys? Twelve monkses. <laughs> sounds like something I'd come up with when I'm not even trying. Yeah. Well, that's how you're supposed to do it. Oh, I put two. Okay. Okay. I'll remember that. Good. All right, so Kelly Wand, I uh, am looking forward to a 12 Monksus. I want monks. you to drive it like you stole it. 12 Monksus. 12 Monksus. 12 Monksus. 12 Monksus. Okay. This isn't it, by the way. I'm just practicing. How many times are you going to practice it? 12? 12. Okay. <laughs> 12 Monksus. Some tiny computer words are all, in the near future, 1998, a plague kills almost everybody, except uh, centipedes and bears and makes it snow a lot. Uh, since scientists were the ones entrusted with plague management, they're now entrusted with time travel. <laughs> like in the Terminator dystopia, killing off most humans usually leads to breakthroughs in physics. <laughs> that is weird, huh? Some CG monkeys twirl around in wheels while creepy music plays. They're red, like herrings. I count six of them and take a booster hit. Some sad music plays while a kid in an airport watches a hippie in a Hawaiian shirt and straw hat get shot in slow motion while a blonde woman screams. <laughs> the kid looks underwhelmed. Like the uh, battleship kid. He didn't give a shit. Bruce Willis farts awake. He and his Hispanic friend live in some Gangs of New York boxes in 2035. <laughs> a PA system's all. Paging inmate Willis, we're out of centipedes. <laughs> hey, I say, here we are in the future. <laughs> Play your cards right on this mission. Maybe they'll promote you, get out of prison and into, uh, you know, Michael Palin's torture chair. Yeah, I think my last movie before this was the Die Hard where I rode a water spout like a Roxanne fireman up from water, like the opposite of Die Hard. A big, a big hook picks him up while a giant eyeball made out of TV screen stares at him. He's all fucking Gilliam. He's put in a hazmat suit with Christmas lights on it and wanders around unarmed in some snow till he finds a caterpillar. <laughs> He's all, unlearn you, Sybil, and puts it in some Tupperware. Then he finds some graffiti. Mm. Yay, we did it. Signed, monkey number one, monkey number two, monkey number three, 12. Suddenly, a bear shows up, stands on its hind legs, opens its mouth, and screams in a woman's voice, I died off screen in annihilation. Why did I pack so much honey in my backpack, dumb? Bruce Willis screams, farts, and pees his suit, although he doesn't notice the bear. Later, underground, while some bad guys hose bear shit off his naked body with scrub brushes. Damn it, Willis, it's the third suit this week and fourth Tupperware. Stop stealing those and putting bugs in them. We need those to eat sandwiches out of. He's cuffed to a chair while some old people in white smocks stare at him. His chair shoots up on a barber pole while the TV screen eyeball on a stick sniffs his face. John Cleese leans over and goes... That's how being on a set with Terry felt in the 60s. <laughs> Ruth Gordon scientist is all, good work getting scared by a bear, Willis. Those are just the skills we're looking for on our new time travel applicant. 
a dwarf in a tutu is all. Yeah, that poster you found that says, we did it, signed 12 monkeys. We realize it could mean anything, but it's obviously referring either to the Worldwide Plague from 96 or a rock band called 12 Monkeys that won a Grammy in 95. <laughs> <laughs> Scientists with googly glasses is all. Okay, so to time travel, uh, you just need to be out of the shot here. <laughs> Bruce Willis screams and finds himself sitting at a diner across from a CG Joseph Gordon Levitt. <laughs> Joseph Gordon's all, wow, it's like looking in a mirror. Bruce Willis looks at us and goes, no, a different time travel movie that I die in. <sighs> he appears on an asteroid watching Ben Affleck crash a buggy into Bashimi. No time travel that I die in. He appears at a strip club watching Jessica Alba writhe around in chaps. Uh, yeah, actually, this is fine. He appears blonde in a pyramid with Bella Jovovich. She's all multi-pass. <laughs> what? I don't even die in this. He appears naked in a World War One trench. A German's all Bruce Willis's leg and shoots him. Bye. <laughs> Oh, that's so stupid. Later in a dark bedroom, a phone rings. Oh, hello? Dr. Stowe? Hey, this is 1990, by the way. Um, you're a psychiatrist in this? <laughs> Sorry. I mean, we have Bruce Willis here. He's drooling and crouched over in a cell. Um, we didn't give him any drugs. He's just bored uh, with a bunch of cops trying to put them in Tupperware. Um, they're in the fridge on the bottom shelf. I'll be there as soon as I can find my hottest pantyhose. Hangs up and goes to asylums to finds a room with Bruce Willis in it, looking exactly the way I felt watching Die Hard Five. <laughs> Madeline Stowe walks in sexily and sits down by him. My dick's all, oh yeah, Stowe. Oh, yeah. Huh. Beside me, Julia Ormond's all. <laughs> <laughs> 90s jokes. Beside her, Costner's all. In the movie Revenge, she made me have sex with her while I was trying to drive a Jeep in Mexico. Seemed like a weird form of revenge since I didn't crash. I was the only one finished, too. Stowe squats by Willis. Hello, I'm former actress Madeline Stowe. After making Bad Girls, I decided to go into psychiatry. Just stay alive, no matter what occurs, that's my motto. <laughs> that's your deal. <laughs> I'm from the future. There's going to be a plague. Here, I can prove it. He picks up a phone, dials a number, and goes, Hello, future? It's Bruce. <laughs> the Spanish lady's all, Hola! She hangs up. <laughs> My housekeeper will be soon, speaking of which, so you might hear that again. <laughs> she just happens to be Spanish. It's not a racist thing. Willis smirks and holds out the receiver. See? And I don't even speak Spanish. Explain that, Charles de Gaulle. Uh, he was a psychiatrist, right? The uh, German one? Stowe loses interest and assigns him to her colleague, Brad Pitt, who has a CGI. <laughs> Later, while Bruce Willis watches the pinhead and the pillow man from Freaks play ping pong, 
Brad Pitt crawls down a wall, musses his own hair, cackles at Willis, and goes, ah, there's a television. It's all right there. Look, listen, Neil, pray. Commercials. Blah, 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 blah. Buy a lot of stuff. You're a good citizen. If you don't buy a lot of stuff, if you don't, what are you then? I ask you. Mentally ill. Fact, Bruce, fact. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy shit we don't need. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires, movie guides and rock stars, but we won't. <laughs> yeah, I think you slipped into Fight Club there at the end. Uh, <laughs> Brad Pitt scowls at an old man. Get out of my chair. He dangles from the chandelier and goes, the puppy Bruce, he was like industry. They were both lost in the woods. Nobody, especially little boy society, you know where to find him. Except the puppy was a dog. But the industry, my friend, that was a revolution. Yeah, I think that's uh, Billy Madison. <laughs> Brad smashes a watermelon with a sledgehammer. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs and the square holes, Bruce. They're the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. Yeah, but the only thing you do is not ignore them, because they can change things, Bruce. They push the human race forward, and while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius, because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Yeah, uh, I think that's Ashton Kutcher in Jobs. Haha, you watched that. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I think I'm just going to go to bed, actually. <laughs> Being in a Terry Gilliam movie isn't what I expected at all. Later, in the asylum bedroom, everyone has a word, Bruce. Heaven, paradise, whatever it's called. It's someplace beautiful, because that's what I choose to believe. Dude, seriously? Prometheus? That's why they call it money, my friend. So brazen. <laughs> Willis stares at him, then eats a spider. <laughs> It's too bad Tupperware hasn't been invented yet. Tupperware Zuckerberg. Reese shot Sweet, you shot Reese. The Rembrandt Papers, Silver Streak. Heisenberg shakes his head at me and goes, Hickory dickory do, madness is like gravity. All it takes is a little push. <laughs> uh, that's Heath Ledger from Dark Knight. Wait, that's who you thought you were playing, isn't it? <laughs> Now I get it. The next morning, Brad Pitt hands Willis a key, winks with both eyes, then jumps on some guards and goes, Laura, run for it. I'll distract him. All the guards giggle and tickle Pitt while Willis shambles and staggers to a door and tries to remember how keys work. He opens it, then shambles past some orderlies rushing towards Pitt, followed by an exasperated Aniston. <laughs> wow. Willis stumbles past a metal detector checkpoint. It starts screaming alarms. The guards all, hey, Willis. Finally, he makes it to a hallway, but unfortunately, it's the one that all the guards live on. They tackle him. He kills a few, then they trick him by strapping him to a table in solitary and shutting the door. The next morning, Stowe comes into the asylum and goes, hey, I miss Bruce Willis after all. Can I see him? They're all, uh, yeah, uh, well... When they open the door, they find Willis gone and his manacles empty. One points up at the ceiling fan 40 feet above and goes, Well, we know he like shafts from Die Hard and Armageddon. <laughs> so, oh well, another missing patient. Later. <laughs> Stowe rolls her eyes. What a broken system. When she gets home, a cop's living in her apartment. <laughs> Seemed kind of brazen, I thought. <laughs> he raises a baggie with a slender bullet in it and goes, Hey, Bruce Willis might be older than we thought. 
this bullet we took from his legs from World War One ought to be of some interest to us forensically, but instead we're seeing it more as proof of his insanity, and therefore your wheelhouse. Uh, we also found some Joseph Gordon-Levitt DNA in his underwear. <laughs> oh. Oh. I'm wearing it. Look it. Stows all. Hmm. World War One, eh? She opens a book entitled Unexplained Bruce Willis Sightings Throughout History. <laughs> very thick. <laughs> and flips past ones of him accidentally shooting Lincoln and falling asleep smoking a cigarette in the Library of Alexandria. Stuff like that. No, World War One's in there, too. Also. She's all, hmm. The cop's all, you said that already. I lean over to Jeff Bridges' corpse decomposing beside me and whisper, <laughs> You were awesome and pretty woman. Totally believed you'd broken Julia Roberts' fingers when you closed that box on her. That was fucking great. The flies circling his sunglasses ignore me. Meanwhile, Bruce Willis wakes up in a hospital room in the future, although it does bear a striking resemblance to the one he just came from. A voice, like if Winnie the Pooh was a serial killer, is all, you, here I am. Maybe I'm just a figment of your imagination. Or maybe I'm Brad Pitt's character in the future. My character's a mystery. You won't figure it out. Don't even try. Bruce Willis is all cool. He falls asleep. When he wakes up, Ruth Gordon wearing Jerry Garcia glasses is all sorry about the World War One and the Spanish lady on the phone. Deary. <laughs> She's actually one of our best agents, by the way. Our time machines are powered by Tupperware, so writer of the Cloverfield Paradox stands up beside me and goes, The science in this movie's retarded. <laughs> Anyway, great work calling a Spanish lady and eating that spider. This time we're just going to drop you next to where Madeline Stowe's given a lecture five years later. She may not look five years older, but uh, uh, that's just a side effect of time travel. Some numbers are all 1995 in MIT's projector room. And here's a photograph of Bruce Willis tripping over Betsy Ross during the signing of the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> And here's John Travolta holding a baby he swore talked with Bruce Willis's voice. <laughs> I did not see that coming. Dingus, look who's talking. Two. Now, thank you all for coming. I'll be signing copies of my new book, Things I've Said at Lectures, 1994 edition, out in the lobby. A weak smattering of derisive applause. She decides to bail on the siding, and as she's getting into her car, a stinky man in a hoodie kidnaps her and drives off in her car. <laughs> oh, it's you, the key to the greatest mystery I've ever professionally encountered. She starts screaming and tries to escape, but he tricks her by making her drive the car. <laughs> she's helpless then. He turns on the radio and listens to Fats Domino sing Blueberry Hill. Bruce tears up. Ugh, a fat man getting laid while fruit falls on him. <gasps> I love music from 1995. Craft work is also good. 
and announcers all. This just in, hottie psychiatrist and former ingenue Madeline Stowe has been kidnapped. <laughs> Police are not investigating or interested at this time. However, in more intriguing news, a kid tripped and fell in a well somewhere in the country. <laughs> Authorities say they are currently turning the crank and lowering the bucket over and over, but so far, no kids. Also, Christopher Plummer is having a dinner party. Now, here's Vanilla Ice with I.B. White, yo. Hey, a motel, pull in here. Watching you drive's boring. Bruce somehow gets Madeline Stowe to the hotel and tied to a bed without the concierge or housekeeping staff feeling sorry for her. <laughs> the next morning, Stowe's all, Seriously? You tie me to a bed all night and don't have sex with me? Men. Listen, Bruce. Kidnapping me and tying me to this bed has convinced me that maybe you are from the future. So what's the plan? Call the Spanish lady back? Nah. I think we should kidnap Brad Pitt. He didn't actually mention plagues or anything, but he did look visibly excited five years ago when I told him he should change his name to 12 Monkeys. She's okay. Later, in a mansion's table room, Plummer taps a glass with a spoon. Billionaires and heiresses, thank you all for coming. I'm former actor and renowned pharmaceutical scientist Christopher Plummer. Beside me, Kevin Spacey's all, Boo! <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you psychiatrists here for making my son Brad sane again. Brad in a tuxedo's all. <laughs> so so sane, in fact, that I've decided to make him superintendent of the Philadelphia Zoo. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> remarkable 13 monkeys, although one looked a little sick this morning. So let's see. Suddenly, Bruce Willis runs in and goes, Don't worry, I'm here from the plague to stop a future. Uh, fuck, I forgot my gun again. Just like at the end of Death Wish. Using his hand, he shoots a couple billionaires, then drags a cackling Brad Pitt up some stairs while waiters chase them and shake their gloved fists with irritation. Madeline stows all. I'm here also. She cackles and runs a different way, but no one cares. Fucking Madeline Stowe. God. Who wants to chase something that looks like that? Bruce Willis points his finger at Brad Pitt's temple and goes, All right, Pitt, don't let me use this. You know what? You don't know where it's been. That's what I was going to say. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to swear not to wipe out the human race with a plague, and I'm going to go downstairs and wonder what to do. Pitt's all, <laughs> Start a plague. That's a great idea. Thanks. <laughs> Damn it. Time travel keeps trolling me. Hopefully this is the last time. Ah, frost to fire and fire to frost. Iron will melt, but it will writhe inside of itself. All these years, all I've known is darkness, but I've never seen a brighter light than when my eyes just opened. Those embers must turn to flame, Bruce. Uh, that's Kristen Stewart from Snow White and the Huntsman. Uh, <laughs> Angus compared her to Brando. <laughs> it can't be true. Down the hall, a waiter's all. There he is. Another one's all. <laughs> Yeah, and so's Bruce Willis. They all charge forward while Bruce and Madeline Stowe trick them by running away and hiding in a bush. Stowe's all, wow, Bruce, that was awesome. We totally ruined that dinner. Woo! <laughs> hey, a freezing cold pond. Cool. He squats in the water. Some cop car headlights shine at them. Stowe's all, fuck the pigs. Okay, Bruce, don't worry. I'll just tell them I kidnapped myself, and hopefully Christopher Plummer and the billionaires and waiters don't mention seeing us do all that property damage. Bruce? 
when she looks back, he's off screen. Bruce? Bruce? Um, my car keys are in your coat? Hello? Ugh. Later in her apartment, on a radio. And in well news, no comma, the kid we all thought fell in a well, turned out he was just playing a prank. He actually fell off a cliff. Bingus, save it for the podcast. Bruce Willis farts awake to see Ruth Gordon and her weird friends leaning over his bed singing Blueberry Hill. <laughs> yeah, you guys are way better than the original. That's great. Thank you. That was your in- <laughs> Wow. It's so long. Gordon's all. That was your reward instead of parole. Good work crashing that dinner party. Best use of time travel since Bill and Ted's history final. Yeah, um... Shouldn't you be sending a scientist back who knows about plagues? I kind of feel like we're going about this dumb. Bruce, please. We're the smartest people on Earth. Granted, they're only 14. The TV screen eyeball and a stick jump scares them, blinking tiredly. Terry Gilliam stands up in front of me and goes, I just glued some TV screens to the boom mic. (laughs) Wasn't supposed to be in the shot, though. Sorry. Meanwhile, in 1995... Madeline Stowe's at a book signing, signing copies of her new book, Dinner Party, Schminner Party. The creepy guy walks up to her and goes, Hi, I play George Washington and John Adams and Shia LaBeouf's neighbor in suburbia. We really did have to put an ankle bracelet on him, by the way. And one on Jamadi. Yeah, that's great. I have to be going. Uh, I work in Christopher Plummer's lab, by the way. Uh, kind of important. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Holy shit. She walks across the street and stares at some graffiti. Twelve monkeys rule. What the? He was right. Oh, my God. She grabs some spray paint away from a startled rapist, then spray paints Madeline Stowe was here over it. A uniformed policeman glances over from across the street, chewing gum and yawns. <laughs> he care. It's suspenseful. Andy McDowell stands up in front of me and goes, I was in Bad Girls also. I'm a bad girl. I'm like a four-side Jocobo. Woo! <laughs> Eventually, the ushers drag her off. Back in the movie, Bruce Willis taps Madeline Stowe on the back. She screams and spray paints him in the face. He's all, uh, could you stop spray painting things? You're causing paradoxes. See? He points to the Lincoln Memorial. It has Kellen Lutz's face. <laughs> she's all wait i thought we were in philadelphia a homeless guy walks up to them and goes they track you through your teeth but i fooled them he smiles and points at his missing front teeth bruce is all yeah actually i heard him say uh last time i was there they only do it through the back molars the guy looks crestfallen and pokes his four remaining teeth glumly oh Then he smiles at Madeline and goes, I could have been your love interest in this. Bruce is all, speaking of which, I got a fun idea. He drags the Battle and Stowe into a theater to watch a stage show from really bad seats in the balcony. Unfortunately, the show doesn't start for 10 hours, and the ushers try to rape Madeline. But Bruce tricks them by beating them to death. Bruce is all, (laughs) wait, hang on, I got another idea, similar. They raid a hotel room, murder a dude, put his body in the bathtub, pull out Bruce's teeth, and when the cops show up, run off giggling. As they run through the streets, Bruce spitting blood. Bruce is all, God, 
Oh, by the way, I also overheard Ruth Gordon saying that for me they used a scrotal tracking device. Probably should have mentioned it before you uh, my teeth out. Forgot. They try to join Brad Pitt's circle of friends. <laughs> get turned away at the door. Hola. Hi. Just doing the twelve monkeys options. It's fine. English. Meanwhile, Brad Pitt kidnaps his dad and puts a sack over his head in a van. Brad, I know it's you. You stood in front of me with my eyes open when you put the sack over my head, you idiot. <laughs> I just want you to know, you're welcome at our house anytime you want to come over. In the meantime, the dowry's on me, Dad. <laughs> Seriously, Brad, Beetlejuice. Meanwhile, Bruce and Madeline get in a cab. The cab driver's all. Eh, we might be a while. Someone let all the animals out of the zoo and put Christopher Plummer in a cage again. He's such a popular exhibit, surface traffic's fucked. <laughs> a girder crashes down from above, flattening a bus. The cabbie's all, fucking monkey construction workers. He hogs. Stows all, Bruce, that's it. Brad Pitt's not spreading a virus. He's just caging his dad. Boy, time travel. Which leads to some threes company misunderstandings, huh? <laughs> Why couldn't he be doing both? That's not the solution. What are you talking about? Later in an airport. Bruce, good news. I just crank called your bosses in the future and said I was from a carpet cleaning company <laughs> called Army of the Twelve Monkeys. Have a Merry Christmas. <laughs> that ought to clear things up. Here, let's get on a plane. Put these on. She ends in a blonde wig. Then she puts a Santa <laughs> mustache on her own face. Yeah, okay, I get it. My hair's thinning. Actually, now's maybe a good time to mention something that I've been dreaming about nightly since I was a kid. Uh, it's us in an airport, and I get... Bruce, please. I'm a psychiatrist. I got this. Bruce's Hispanic friend from the future walks up, hands a gun to Willis, and goes, Here you go, I said good luck. He walks off. <laughs> Bruce is all, This doesn't seem very fair. <laughs> At a security checkpoint... What in the hell's this? Bioweapon virus. <laughs> <laughs> Smells like mustard gas and almonds. Where are you headed? Oh, around the world. <laughs> <laughs> You're all going to die. <laughs> all right. Well, have a nice trip, Mr. Terrorist. Obvious terrorist. Another guard's all. Look out, it's Bruce Willis. Wait, what? Why? <laughs> the security guards all gun down Bruce Willis while sad music plays. <laughs> Matt, missing her plane, runs by crying in slow motion while Bruce, as a 1950s kid, watches bored. <laughs> it was a different time. <laughs> Seemed like the wrong disguise. Never mind. On the plane, David Moore sits next to Ruth Gordon and goes, "Lols, someone in the line at our gate got shot. Good thing it's not delaying the flight. Hey, baby. What's your line of work? Insurance. She winks at us victoriously as if to say, my only company on this upcoming 36-hour flight is going to be a psychotic terrorist. I win. As some words tell me who kept the eyeball screens on a stick from harassing Stowe, Woody Allen leans over to me and goes, Meh, I prefer his earlier, funnier ones. 
Gilliam stands up in front of us and goes, speaking of which, Coyote's done. The end. (laughs) (laughs) Very, Kelly Wan, way better than I thought uh, you would get from a super old movie like that. Nice. Well done. Yes, very well done. And a good movie. (sighs) Well, okay, spoiler. Kelly Wan, what do you think of 12 Monkeys? Okay, Three things. What do you think of it? What's your over under? And when is the last time you had seen it before we watched it for this podcast? I saw it by pure chance like a few months ago, like mm-hmm. just on Netflix. I watched because I hadn't seen it in a while. So that's why it was kind of weird when it won because it was it's not something I'd seen for a long time. And I, I thought it kind of held up. But it was also weird because I thought while I was watching it that the 1995 parts looked more science fictiony to me and and unrealistic than the future stuff, which actually feels like the world we're really living in. But um, there's two kinds of time travel movies. This is part of my over-under thesis. Um, There's the ones where time travel screws you and you can't do anything, like Terminator 1, which, you know, it's, it's it's like a river in Final Countdown. And then there's the ones where it's fluid and humans can change the past retroactively like it will. And then visit. it's like it's on the it's on time travel to keep up with us, basically, like Bill and Ted or Back to the Future. And Looper kind of tries to have it both ways, sort of. Um, but for my over under, I tried to stick at time travel movies. Time travel sucks movies where you can't just change the past. You have to, like, be careful. Um, and so my over is uh, Primer, which I think is my favorite time travel movie. Oh, sure. Because I, I, I don't put that in the same category because it doesn't have – it's such a, it has such a different feel than other time travel movies. It does, oh, it does, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's one of my favorite movies, and just the dialogue in it, and also the way it—it's like it has a—it has a message about time travel, which is that like it's too important to use just for money, but it's too dangerous to use for anything else. I really mm-hmm. like that. Like it's not just a plot device, but they really get into it. Um, yeah, yeah. And my Planet Planet the Apes '68. Uh, just because I like that slightly less than this. There's a lot of time travel movies I like a lot less than this. So we'll talk about this in a minute, but if you're lumping 12 monkeys in with movies where you can't change time, you're not correct. Do you know that? Um, All right, we'll get back. We'll get to that in a moment. Okay. Uh, Dingus, what do you think of 12 monkeys? What's a movie that you like better than it? What's a movie you like less? And and other than this podcast, when, when, what was the last time you had seen it? Um, You know... It might be when I saw it in a theater, actually. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I know. Uh, and it's a movie that I really think fondly of. Uh, and it would have won. But it just got a lot of repeat value, maybe. Like, not... Like well, hold, hold on, But I don't know that I'm correct about that, but I can't I can't track it. I look through... I mean, I usually keep records of like when I watch movies and whatnot. Um, and I can't think of the last time I watched it other than when I saw it in a theater. Okay. Which is weird. Uh, so anyway, so over under, I just uh, I basically went with movies that are based on uh, short movies, short films, mm-hmm. um, and that I think do something interesting with the with the material in expanding them. So the under would be uh, District Nine, uh, which I like quite a bit, but I like this uh, more than that. And then over, and this is going to be a little weird. Because uh, it's a smaller movie than this. This is a much more ambitious movie. That would be Heart Eight, which was based on a short called Sydney, um, that uh, that Paul uh, Thomas Anderson made. 
And okay. largely that's based on my feelings about both of these. A lot of my feelings about this movie and a lot of my thoughts about this movie are not necessarily based on what's going on with the um, plot so much as the acting. Because the acting is really important to me in this movie. Uh, I really, I really, really love 12 Monkeys. I, uh, I love, uh, I, I just, I love the whole way it, it sets up. Uh, and I, Actually, I had a huge fight with a bunch of friends over the acting in this movie at a party one time. Uh, and we'll get into that at some point. Um, and in fact, one of our emailers wants us to talk about this very thing. Uh, but I but I really quite liked it. And so that's my over and under. How about okay. you, Tom? Uh, so my over and unders, I also went with time travel movies because I think that's very much what, what's going on here. Uh, I'm not a big fan of 12 Monkeys. I appreciate certain things about it. But uh, I think it's – I would call it minor gilliam. There's touches of brilliance to it. But I think 12 Monkeys is half of a great movie and half of Gilliam kind of being out of his element. And I don't think – That's true. I don't think that part of it really works. Uh, I appreciate a lot about it. I'd seen this I, I think probably in the last five years. Uh, but it was nice watching it again more closely with an eye for you know realizing that I was about to talk about it. Uh, and I discovered some – new things, including, I, I'm not sure I appreciated the ending, which I definitely want to talk about. Uh, so I think I'm going to end up being the kind of wet blanket here. I, I, I respect 12 Monkeys. It is better than most non-genius director's movies. Uh, but as far as a <laughs> Terry Gilliam movie goes, uh, I, I, you know, it's not Zero Theorem or Brothers Grimm, uh, but I don't think it's anywhere near things like Fear and Loathing or uh, Brazil, certainly. Uh, or Tideland, which I think are his, his best movies. Um, and so my over and under uh, have to do with movies that take this idea of a savior from the future. You know, what are we going to do about that? Are we going to believe this person? Will we trust this person? Will we throw this person in an insane asylum? And I think the best example of that, because it it is super effective at what I think 12 Monkeys fails at, it's an incredibly paced just immaculately muscular, lean, economically made time travel movie called The Terminator. Uh, and Cameron cut his yeah. teeth doing you know, action movies with what he started out in the, the Terminator. And I just think The Terminator is just so lean and mean and compact, whereas 12 Monkeys has a lot – it's trying to do a lot of different things, some of which don't work for me. Uh, and my under would be another – Time, uh, so my under is a movie as is, a, is a, a, a lovely and very talented young actress named Britt Marling, and sh her first movie she did with a fellow named uh, Zalbot Mangley, I think is his name, uh, is a movie called Sound of My Voice, and she plays the leader of a cult who claims to revere someone who's come back through time, and uh, a great uh, – I think he's Canadian, an actor named Christopher Denham, who we know from Argo. He's a journalist, a freelance journalist who wants to infiltrate this cult and find out what's the deal with this woman. She's obviously a sham. And the movie is about, you know, is she or is she not from the future? And how is this guy going to insinuate himself into this cult? Uh, and it's uneven. Uh, but I really like Sound of My Voice. It's not as good. You know, 12 Monkeys is an erratic, uneven work of genius. Sound of My Voice is just a solid indie film from a first-time director. And if you've seen a horrible, horrible series with Britt Marling called The OA, 
That is basically <laughs> sound of my voice drawn over multiple hour-long episodes. Uh, it's padded. It's terrible. The ending is risable. I don't understand how the guy who made an, a compact little story like Sound of My Voice can make the OA. Uh, and that's my under, the movie Sound of My Voice, not the OA. <laughs> the OA is pretty much under everything. Uh, underneath 12 Monkeys. Would is that be a movie? The OA? Yeah. No, it's a miniseries. Uh, right. It's basically... Ten, I think it's ten hour long episodes uh, with Britt Marling and this whole weird thing about her leading a cult. Like it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a terrible. You know, I, I don't want to spoil the ending, but imagine a school shooting averted by interpretive dance. Oh God! That makes you go. that's the usual thing of making me want to see something. When all right, we'll have fun watching all ten whatever hours sure. of the OA. <clears throat> One thing I like about the LA, who's that kid that was in uh, Brooklyn? Uh, who we don't really like. Spike Lee. No, no. Um, oh, Emery Cohen, I think is his name. He's a he's a sort of schlubby looking guy. Uh, he's in the OA. He's sort of fun to watch. Uh, and I forget who plays. There, there's a super evil uh, villain in the OA. Um, I forgot. My mom likes it. Your mom likes it. Yeah. Jason Isaacs. That's right. Jason Isaacs is the bad guy. Have they Sorry, talked about? Is it a spoiler to tell us what OA stands for? Oh, it stands for Original Angel. You know, no, Britt Marley, Original enough. Angel. Yeah. The loft, How do you feel about school shootings that take place with a bow and arrow? Dingus, we need to talk about Kevin. <laughs> I think we do. Well, is this is this Terry Gilliam's only uh, movie where you can say it's pretty much all plot? Like he's well, never. Well, he didn't. It's one of the movies, him. and I think maybe it was Nick D. One of our writer, one of our uh, emailers said that. This is the this is the first movie he directed that he didn't write. Right. He didn't have a part in writing. And you can tell. Um, but to me, it's what it's. Um, I think the thing that bothers me about it is also the thing I like about it, which maybe is what Tom's talking about, which is that they never explore the idea of Bruce Willis not going to that airport. You know what I mean? Like it's a causal loop, and there's no reason for him to be there except to get shot. That it all would have happened anyway. I'm, yeah, but I'm not sure. I mean, isn't that kind of inevitable? No. Most time travel why, movies, though, is that the loop is going to fall apart at some point if you take into account free will. And Right, but they're, they give him a gun so that the loop stays intact. There's no reason for him to have that gun. unless The theory is that they're going to punish him because he's, he's – that's another thing. We don't know how the time travel works. So when he goes, I'm not going to do it anymore, we're a little unclear on the fact whether he has that power or not because he didn't think he – he was necessarily going around voluntarily before that. But. Well, I don't. I don't have an answer to that because I do think it does kind of fall apart. And I have a whole. I have like a list of things that I don't think work. And for uh-huh. every one of these, by the way, there are things that, that work. Uh, but I, I think Kelly Wan, that might be one of the issues. Is I'm not sure that the story overall holds up. I mean, you can't really expect that from time travel movies necessarily. Anyway. I try to. Um, but Dingus, do you have? Can you? address Kelly Wan's issue about the whole, why do they go to the airport? And uh, do, you, do you have anything there as our... Uh, as why do they guy? wear the wigs? Because <laughs> the cops are looking for well, them. Well, he has to see right. him, But just go to a different he airport. He has to see himself die in order to be able to be part of that, uh, in order to be that special guy that they send back. I mean, it is it is loopy, Um but he has to see himself die. That's an important part of the story. But if he That's got why away, he has to go to the airport. 
And that, well, by the way, is what's taken from uh, La Jetée, the, the, the little right. short film. I mean, there, there's a bunch of stuff in this movie going on, and the fact that, you know, it just, does La Jetée get a credit in the credits, Dingus? Oh, uh, yes, it does. Okay. Uh, and, and that's the whole point of La Jetée, is a guy who sees his own death, and that's the reveal at the end of this, I think it's like a 20-minute French short. Um, right. How do they change the future, in your opinion? Or Well, they stop him. No, she's but she's now wait. That's why she's an insurance. Yeah, that's, that's the whole no, no, point her saying she's an insurance. No, 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 no. Yes, the, yes, yes, play, yes, 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 yes. Wait, listen to me. Listen right. to me. You're both idiots. The plague. <laughs> I won't. The plague I won't is that. But. I think I think I know what Kelly Wan is going to say, and I, I'm worried that he might be right. Go ahead, Kelly Wan. Okay, good. The plague still happens, and she knows it's going to happen, but she's there to get like a pathogen or something like if she if she knows the origin of it they can have a vaccine for it in the future and stop it in the future so oh she can't that's not what insurance means though wait that's not what that means uh you know he well here's the thing that i thought i was going to say dingus that i i wondered about the guy who smells the uh he opens the stopper and smells it that's the plague getting out right there isn't it before david morse gets on the plane maybe well i think but insurance is people when people die yeah Insurance means is when people die and you get compensated. And that's what she's doing because everyone's going to die from the plague still. So the insurance line makes sense that way. Well, that's where the we, whole idea of he who smelt it Delta came up. <laughs> why do we even have the whole bit, though, about it? Hey, look who's on the plane. And she has the, the little tricky line about, oh, I'm just insurance in case Bruce Willis fails. Well, then I just why, said do we have that, why do we have that scene ending the movie when we could just have Bruce Willis fail? Right. Because Bruce Willis doesn't fail, and he when he calls them from the airport the second time, which isn't in the Opsis, uh, he goes, hey, it wasn't the 12 monkeys, it was this guy. But then you go, well, why would you even send him back? Like, if it are, like you already got that message, too. That's the part of it that, that falls apart for me, is they would have gotten his second phone message the way they already got Stowe's message before she leaves it. Well, I think the, the, the idea is it, didn't, it, it doesn't exist in any time loop until he creates it. Right. If they were going to stop the plague, they would kill him, Tom. Well, and, and, and to, Kelly Wan's, to Kelly Wan's point, too, I think their whole idea – this isn't – I think we're conditioned by having seen the Terminator of this idea of going <laughs> back in the past and preventing and something from happening. They don't ever, I think, talk in that language in 12 Monkeys. No, in and 12 they monkeys, they're just, right. In 12 Monkeys, they're just talking about bringing back samples and studying it and using what they learn to to, to, to – uh, recover the earth where they are now i think we might be applying to the movie this stuff we learned from james cameron terminator so kelly one might have a point there and also like to give him the gun like the only reason to do that is to keep the loop intact which means they believe in it like they're not trying to change it and her going back wouldn't change it either but so it's 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 been set up that way like the whole point of bruce willis's death is to go you got to keep the loop intact period you know what i mean Kelly might have won me over, Dingus. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Insurance. <laughs> about it. But that's not All right, well, what it, Yeah, okay. Good. And that's what I like about the movie is the fact that it's a causal loop. Like he dies for no reason, but that's just the way it was. It like I kinda like the weirdness of that. Like But he doesn't no die for no reason. He has to die. He so does he make the phone call. Death. He does make no, I know that's true, but really, he could if he'd escaped to if he'd gotten on the plane, it still would have been the same outcome. Well, no, because I mean, I think what Dingus is saying is he has to uh, all for all this to work, he has to be entranced by this vision of Marilyn Stowe and seeing the guy get shot, uh, like all that has to be implanted in this little kid's head. And so, but if why? he just is walking past, 
Well, because it, it'll have to do with him uh, running, being on the lamb with Marilyn Stowe and falling in How? love with her. And well, otherwise, it, he doesn't. He's, he's just, you think he's when just he's a psychiatrist? That's how it happens anyway. It makes him into yes, it makes yes. him into a, the special being because he also he sees her there he sees her again and it it sets up that weird dichotomy between am I crazy or am I time traveling and they need that to offset what's going on. That's true, but I don't think he sees her as Madeline until the end. And like she, I think they even use a different actress for her face and the no, shots. No, no, they no, don't. I, I no. got Yeah, I, I mean I doubt, and I didn't. That didn't occur but I definitely don't think he's thinking because he doesn't even think about it till he's in the airport and she hands him the mustache and he's like, "Wait, what?" But then that's where that's another breakdown for me is that's where he'd realize what was going to happen. I don't know. I still like it. <laughs> the acting, right, right. well, it's, he doesn't it's, like it's, the acting. It, it's the thing is, it's a, it, it's whatever the case. It's certainly one of those movies where there's a lot to think about and there's a lot. Right. To but and he is not, a very passive character. But it's Bruce Willis playing passive. Character. What? Okay. Um, well, let, let's then talk about the acting because I, I, Dingus, what was your fight and who won the fight? Uh, nobody won. We all lost. Actually, it was a, it was a uh, real knockdown dragout. It was at a party to, at a friend's house. It was many years ago, and it was me arguing that uh, I, um, I just thought the be- I thought the best performance in this was Bruce Willis, and that's basically based. And this is something that Chris Markinson and I have talked about extensively because I got to actually watch this movie with him this week um, is that scene in the car when he kidnaps her uh, and her, her progression is very strange. Uh, and I want to talk about that eventually, but, but the, but that those moments where, where he's talking about the music of the 20th century, Blueberry Hill is just a dopey song as far as I'm concerned. And the fact that he just, he just, Tears up and then late and then just goes crazy about the music of the 20th century and the air of the 20th century. And then once we get around to um, What a Wonderful World, I mean, that's a song that actually moves you. But Blueberry Hill cares about that song. But he's like, we don't have anything like this. And I just love and I and one of our listeners, I, I think it might be Nick D again. I'm not sure. Uh, Josh Lubliner, by the way, is the one who uh, said that um, this is the first movie that Terry Gilliam directed that he didn't write. Um, talks about the fact that uh, Terry Gilliam didn't want Bruce Willis to do his normal, like, steely, steely-eyed uh, gaze kind of thing uh, and wouldn't let him do that kind of thing. Uh, and in that scene in the car where he's sticking his head out the window, breathing the air and listening to the music, uh, I'm totally won over by what he's doing in this. And for me, Brad Pitt is just doing a lot of uh, stuff. And he's got like this weird glass eye or whatever's going on with his eye. Uh, and I felt, I felt like, and I was talking to these friends of mine, they're very good friends of mine at the time um, that I thought that his role in seven, and this is almost what I picked for an over under is, is actors who surprised me as being better than the more experienced actor or, uh, so it would be like th- this would be the the over would be seven because I thought he was really good in seven. I really loved what he was doing. It seemed like he was kind of finding his way and he's not doing all this weird, wacky, crazy stuff that he's doing. Um, so the argument was that I, I really didn't like the fact that I think Brad Pitt was nominated for this for just doing a bunch of stuff that are, is wacky in the same way that for me. 
Rain Man, which would have been my under for acting. Uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman is basically just doing a technical thing. It's just technical. And Tom Cruise has the harder part in that movie. He has to carry the movie. Well, Dustin Hoffman just basically learns a couple of technical ticks, and he does those things. Um, so we got in a huge fight about that. I don't know why we got so passionate about it, but we did. But that was the fight. I, I'm with you, Dingus. I love Bruce Willis in this. It's because yeah, it's before he's he's cemented his ideas, you know, his identity is, you know, he's he's John McClane. He's always tough, or at least he's letting loose of that. Uh, and he's let himself be vulnerable and drool. And my favorite thing about that scene you're talking about is how he's kind of sheepish about not knowing that it was an ad rather than someone talking to him through a mm-hmm. speaker. I love that little moment. It's a, it's a little quick moment where she's like, they're not talking to you. That's an advertisement. Or, or she even calls it an advertisement. I don't know. She, yeah, why, why talks she that way? <laughs> but I just love him in that scene and specifically how he's kind of sheepish about not knowing what an advertisement is. Uh, and it's just nice watching Bruce Willis not being super cocky and super badass and self-assured. Yeah. Uh, and it's cast against type, cast against type, and and kind of committed and willing too. Absolutely, most emotional um, I've ever seen him. And in yeah. defense of Brad Pitt's performance, um, it's sort of grown on me over the years. Uh, and also, I think it's like there's a purpose to it. Like I think he's trying to be fun, but also he's a decoy too. And so the fact that he's so loud and like constantly in the movie, but he turns out to not to, to be a red herring. I think that's connected. Yeah. And, and also I, what I think I'm with Dingus and I don't think it's necessarily like a sign. Like I, some people would characterize this as, Hey, this is where Brad Pitt really demonstrated. He's a great actor. And I'm I'm not sure I would go with that. I do. I do think he's a really good actor and I like him a lot. Uh, but, but what he's doing here is is very, is just cartoon mania, and right. that's literally what it is with how it's set up with the cartoon sound effects, uh, mm-hmm. and that's what Terry Gilliam wants from him. Like I think right. what Brad Pitt is doing, I have no problem with it because it's absolutely appropriate. It fits Terry Gilliam's tone at that point, mm-hmm. like a glove, and like he's super com- and the plot, absolutely. But I don't think it's anything particularly special, and I couldn't care less who gets Academy Awards or whatever. Uh, but I, I'm with Dingus, and I think the the really special acting here is, is Bruce, Bruce Willis. And Brad Pitt yeah. is fine; he's effective. Um, but I, I like Battle I, too. Well, I, I, man, she's so gorgeous. Yeah, and she seems really scared during. Like it's her. She's one of her. Well, best Dingus, so talk about the progression because you mentioned something about the progression of her character. What 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 did you want to say about that? Let's talk about Madeline right. Stowe. Before I do that, just let me. Let me say real quick uh, that Josh Lubliner, Josh L, uh, he he says that he's the one. I think he says that the that Pitt's performance is contentious. Um, he hopes there will be an argument about it on the podcast, uh, <laughs> and he thinks he's brilliant in it. So he's his manic activity, crazy eyes, physical tics, his rising energy during the rants, the way he keeps it under the surface during the dinner scene. Uh, he thinks he's great. Um, you know who else is really good, Josh Lerner? Uh, Bay Ling in Crank High Voltage. I think you'll enjoy that performance as well. All right, go ahead. Please. I actually heard a little Bay Ling during one of Kelly Wan's things. Christopher Walken impressions? No, no, no. It was you had you had a little Bay Ling in one of the. Joke, white man. Right, I'm sorry, I brought it up. All right, so um, I'm not crazy about Madeline Stowe in this, to be honest. Uh, oh, I don't think she. I don't think she can handle some of the stuff. Like the stuff in that car where Bruce Willis is just so – I mean he just – he he breaks my heart. That scene in the car 
breaks my heart. The first scene where he's leaning forward to listen to the music and leaning back and leaning out the window. And she's kind of, I don't know that, I don't, I don't know that maybe I was never a real big metal and Snow fan, but Ooh. what I like about her, Dingus, boo, how Dingus. dare I know, you? Boo, yeah. I know. Uncool. Dingus. Uncool. Are you yeah. insane? What's wrong with you, Dingus? You fucking God. <laughs> how much time do you have for me to tell you what's wrong with me? Um, Why don't but, you like her? I'm really shocked. Cause I, I just, she, I, don't, I don't believe her. I don't, I don't know what it is. You, I, I Dave, believe... so here's what, I'm sorry, Dingus, go ahead. No, go ahead, Tom. Well, I, when you say you don't believe, I, I don't think it's her fault. I, I think she's given the, the standard female. She's a kidnapped victim. Right. And this is such a trope. They're, they're a mismatched. And this is, by the way, this is where I think 12 monkeys takes its first huge misstep is that it wants to be a movie about a kidnapped victim, you know, a mismatched couple on the lamb and she has to fall for him. And we don't yeah. explore her character much. She's there to do exposition. Right. She's just a prop. Uh, it's just a poorly written role and there's nothing Thankless. to it other than a support structure to find out how the man feels and for her, him to fall in love. And I don't, yeah. I, so Dingus, I, this whole, I don't Act believe her. I don't, I don't think you can pin that on her. Okay. I think that's just the, the way the character is written. Cause what strikes me about Madeline Stowe in this is how she's really trying to find something there, even though I don't think there's anything there. And hmm. how freaking beautiful she is. She's got Good the most amazing dark eyes. And, and, and it made me think too, how, how uh, Last of the Mohicans uses Madeline Stowe and the chemistry she has with Daniel Day-Lewis and just how freaking – that is just so steamy yeah. and I get so turned on watching her in Last For of the Mohicans sure. because of the two of them. And she just this, – this Bruce Willis can't give her that kind of uh, dingus. Heat is a word that we use a lot. I don't think he can give her that kind of heat and I don't think he's supposed to. Mm. And I don't think she can call much of a meaningful performance or character out of what's in the script. Um, so I, I just want to elaborate in that Dingus, I, I agree with you when you say things like I don't believe her, but I don't think it's her fault. So I watch this movie and I still admire her deeply and am super attracted to those dark eyes. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I'm not saying she's not attractive. I mean, but for me, she doesn't have any more depth than Andy McDowell, which I think is maybe an insult. Um, and maybe you're right. Maybe it's. Maybe it's the writing, but what I do like about what she is trying to do, and this is where I think you're right, Tom, that she is trying to reach for something, is is that progression that she has to make in this. And it, it's really difficult that that uh, yeah, I've been kidnapped. I could run away if I wanted to, but I'm not going to. Well, it's a dumb trope, um, isn't it? I mean, it's it's, it, yeah. it's really stupid. Yeah. She gets she gets abused repeatedly, <laughs> uh, thrown in the trunk, tied to the house, motel yeah. bed. Um, you know, subjected to hit watching him point a gun at the animal activists, one of whom is the dude from Silicon Valley, by the way. Um, oh, yeah, right. he's he's the Huli, the leader of Huli, uh, the the guy Gavin with the floppy Bilson. hair. Yep, Gavin Bilson. And in fact, there was one moment. This is one of my favorite moments in the movie. Um, the guy who's the has the dark hair turns around and looks at the screen. And I was watching this with uh, our friend Alexandra, and she has trouble like picking out what actors are in what so like it was that guy in that one thing and the guy turned and i looked at his face and i was like okay i know what he looks like and alexander went oh and i went no that's not the guy who played spock and she went oh <laughs> um I but i that, anticipated but yeah. it i anticipated that uh um and i can't even remember his name now the guy who from margin call zachary quinto 
I said, that's not Zachary Kento. And she went, oh, okay. And then went back to watching the movie. Zachary but, Kento uh, would have been uh, six years old. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, but, you know. Um, but anyway, I do like what she's reaching for as far as trying to justify. And, and I think you're probably right, Tom. I think she's trying to find a way to justify by character uh, something that's poor in the writing. Uh, and she's trying to justify it in acting as well as she can, and I think that's difficult. I mean, she gets uh, it's she gets thrown in a trunk, and then she beats up Bruce Willis, and then she has to just like stand there and wait for lights to come out of the woods uh, while he splashes around in a pond. So, I mean, I think there there is a certain amount of thanklessness to it, and that's difficult for her. Um, but, and I'm not going to uh, suggest somebody else who could have played the part. I just I don't know. She's she also a decoy. What'd you say? She's also a decoy because we've seen it's been set up that there's a blonde woman in the first shot. And so she has to act like she's not that into Bruce Willis because we go, well, it's, that's not like that's not how that's obviously not Bruce and Madeline in that. So we don't know how that's going to turn. Well, no, out. no, we don't know. It's Bruce Willis. Right. I mean, that's but, that's so, the but, part of the equation that that the that that's the big reveal about that. Right. Vision, is but where she's we're introduced to people, and I think Terry Gilliam's very calculated about this. Yeah. We're introduced to people who have long hair and ponytails. Whether it's David Morse, whether it's Brad Pitt uh, after right, he's out of the right. insane asylum, and you're thinking, okay, somebody with long hair is going to get shot, and you're thinking it's the terrorist who's going to get shot, or there's someone, one of the members of the Twelve Monkeys, and the big reveal is. That it that it's uh, it's Bruce Willis himself, but I, I think it's kind of clear all along that it's Madeline Stowe, and Bruce that, Willis even says, "I saw you in my dream, but you had different. Right. You had your, but, but you were blonde. Not only is it a different hair color, but you go, oh, the first time we see her, she's sobbing in horror, and throughout most through most of the movie, Madeline Stowe is like she's a psychiatrist. You go, well, we can't, she's not the one screaming and and being sad because that's not how a psychiatrist would be. So like, it's kind of. Well, but we're also supposed to wonder, you know, why is she so invested that when the twelve yeah. one of the peoples gets shot, why does she so care? What are we going to find out about her? Okay. I mean, it's a it's a mystery, and the solution yeah. to the mystery is, oh, Bruce Willis has long hair. You're showing you're showing yeah. him bald throughout yeah. the movie, <laughs> so nobody would guess. the The solution to the mystery is it's Bruce Willis in a wig, not she's a psychiatrist. I mean, that's that's the key that unlocks everything. I, I think, which is kind of a simple thing. But yeah. um, you know, it's a simple thing. But what I like about it, and I like, so I, I've I've said before, you know, when a when a professor is giving a lecture or somebody's reading a mm-hmm. book, always pay attention to what that is. And similarly, when characters go into a theater and a movie is showing, pay attention. And mm-hmm. it it it's noteworthy yeah. that they go into a screening of Vertigo, which is where Jimmy Stewart gets Kim Novak to change her hair Different color, hair, right. and he does it for his own purposes because he's this weird guy who's hung up on this woman, possibly insane. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. And so I think that Terry Gilliam very smartly invokes vertigo without hitting us mm-hmm. over the head with it, uh, with this whole idea of them changing their hair color and that being both a misdirection and a solution to this mysterious vision. Uh, that's one of the things – because here's the thing is I think once this becomes a, a, a couple on the lamb movie where – their chemistry just is whatever, it's okay, but and then her motivation just is such a trope or it's the kidnap victim. And Christopher Maloney even mentions this, by the way. Right. Why yeah. is it the kidnap victim's always falling you know, like they're lampshading it? Um, yeah. <laughs> but but I, I kind of feel that my problem the brilliant part of Twelve Monkeys is the setup and that long sort of I guess it's the second act or whatever, well into the third act, where it's about them on the lamb and their relationship. Like none of that really works for me. However, mm. that payoff 
where we discover, yeah, it's Bruce Willis that gets shot. Like that part I really like. And when she changes her hair color and uh, vertigo is invoked. Like I love those bits. Okay, but good. Overall, yeah. overall, I just don't care for once they go on the lamb and she has to fall in love with him. I was uh, I was really keen on asking you guys because I I said this in the past about how you have to be careful about quoting something else because you're just going to make me think of the better thing. Right. Um, and so he's it's pretty bold move to have a whole Hitchcock film festival take place in the middle of his movie. And in fact, uh, Nick D says, I suspect that David Peoples was going for a sci-fi crossed with Hitchcock. Um, much <laughs> yeah. like he had crossed sci-fi with noir earlier in his career. Twist. Um, and the, the, one of the moments I really do love that I think that Madeline Stowe can handle is that moment where she, where she does, where they have the, the music from vertigo and they're talking and she has the wig on. And I think she handles that Hitchcock stuff beautifully. Yeah. Um, but what did you guys think about the idea of him invoking Hitchcock, having them sit through Hitchcock and all of that? Yeah, well, like I, that's like that's one of the they things I like. And, and a lesser director would have put in the scene where Jimmy Stewart's actually talking about changing her hair. Like we didn't we right. didn't get hit over the head with it. We have to. It, Terry Gilliam is counting on us having seen Vertigo. He's not telling us why he's putting Vertigo in there. I, that's in there for the people who have both seen Vertigo and remembered it, and who are watching this movie. Uh, I also like the idea that Bruce Willis isn't here very long, and I saw it as Madeline Stowe going, well, since you fly off soon and you liked your Blueberry Hill, here's a movie, you can, since you like the old-timey stuff. Oh. <laughs> I didn't think of it that way. a good movie, like get in an hour and a half of something good since you're, Kelly, you were that's a really in your adulthood because you had a plague and you were a kid when it happened. That's a really good point, and I didn't even think about that because his his thing is like we don't have anything like this in the future, you know, or where I'm from, and and the movie would have been the same thing. That's a really. I don't think. Point. I mean, aren't they just in there though to hide? I well, like that idea, but I don't think she's showing him movies so much as getting him in a dark place to put a disguise on him. He does I mean, react to it. They have but to he be says, shushed. I've seen this before. I think. <laughs> but this is me reading into it. I mean, okay. Tom. In all fairness, but he says I've seen this before. I think when uh, they're sitting he? there and uh, she's see, like plastering the mustache to him. Well, we also have to realize that he's seen it when he was a kid on TV. That he was a kid, yeah. in, you know, when when Vertigo would have come out. Uh, right. That's that's the whole point of. You know, we then find out he was a little boy. Wait, no, is that right? No. No, it's a dangerous. He'll have to sign a waiver. I do love a little boy then. The future is the past when I'm watching it. Like Predator 2 takes place in the crazy future of 1999 or something. Escape from New York, yeah. Predator 2? In the day. Yeah, yeah. Like it's future LA. So the corrugated metal is. uh, Yeah. Let me ask you about, too, something that I. I don't know if I'm missing something or if it's another red herring or if it's a miss. Why does she a couple of times say to him, I feel like I've seen you before? She hasn't traveled through time. When does she I say think- – A couple of – two places. When she first meets him at the, the police station, she's like, have I treated you before? Have you been in, a, in a, an asylum? Because I feel like I've seen you before. And then there's a second time in the movie where she's like, I feel like I've seen you before. There are two – times in the movie where she specifically says that maybe that's a time travel ripple in but that's what i'm saying is she doesn't travel through time except in the same sense that we all do in the one direction right but if you oh. if you encounter a time traveler and get tied to bed by them <laughs> all right. but i'm not missing anything right we're no there's no implication that she has that's a, that, well, she, she or maybe as a the, child so 
but no, but that's that. after but that doesn't make any impact things. on her. And that's after she has said those things. Too. Yeah, right. And she knows he's a like she knows that's him, right? Oh, it's from the book. Okay, like it's from, from the picture from the, the World the book War Two book. Willis appearances, right? From the from uh, Bruce well, Willis what? through the years as right. <laughs> presented to us. Actually, that okay, that that answers that. All right, good. Yeah. All. Although that is a less uh, exciting answer. What is Sorry. the deal? Why is the what's the deal with the kid in the well? Timmy fell down the well. Uh, oh, that's where she knows he's from the future because he predicts. He goes, "Oh, it's a hoax," and then later on, she finds out he was okay, right. Okay, right. And then the look Timmy. on her face is, "Oh my God, Bruce Willis was right." You're right, right. And, and everyone thinks he's. Yeah, I love that he tries to explain it away. Problem. Like uh, we both saw the ta- same TV show when we were kids. Um, yeah. Uh, that's what it is. Uh, Although I, I do love one of the things I love about Bruce Willis's performance is there's there's another moment where he he's hoping that he's crazy and he realizes that he's not when she tells him about the bummed. message and yeah. he's bummed that he's not crazy and the, there's just a little moment where he looks up and it's just a really very it's just a subtle little moment where he's just like crap I'm not crazy. <laughs> It's it's beautiful. It's yeah. a beautiful little moment where he says, "Crap, I'm not crazy." You can see it in his face. I love. It's another red herring, but it's a story point too, because that's where he does realize he's not crazy, like he just said. Yeah. But it's her being goofy. Uh, but the thing about the well that I was thinking while I was watching it was, he remembers that this was a hoax days before a plague killed most of humanity, which I thought was surprising. But he didn't remember the plane shooting also with that same level. Like, I was actually at the plane shooting. A kid fell in the well on the radio. Big fucking deal. But, like, I want, right before the plague happened, check this out. This is what happened. I do think it's funny to watch that through the lens of uh, post-9-11 to think, yeah, they're going to let a plane take off after there was a shooting in the terminal, really? Yeah, minutes <laughs> earlier. He does mention, though, in, in connection to that, never cry wolf. Like, apparently that was something where his father right. had told him. Like, it, it, it made an impression on him, and it had something to do with what his father told him. Uh, so oh, I think it's point. not so much that it was necessarily prominent in his memory, but just as a kid, it made an impact on him in terms of being told by his father, never cry wolf, because look what happens with this kid. Oh, that's also, a really good point, Tom, actually. He has a really cool line, like, uh, what are you talking about? He goes, "Ah, something bad." Right. And then he yawns. He has this yawn at that moment. He does. He does these great yawns at weird moments in the car because he's so tired, he's so exhausted. Right. But a yawn usually means you're bored or something. <laughs> but he's not bored. He's just like he's been he's been through this so much. I love that you brought that up. I, what is with the misdirect? That is, I don't know that anyone would ever fall for this. That he is going to kill her and put her in the trunk, and then the body is found. What is with that misdirect? Why is that there, and what is it doing? I really hate that. Kelly Wan, defend it. Uh, what's that? <laughs> where it looks like there's, he's about to strangle her. And yeah, it, there's and a whole scene where she's like, James, don't. What are you doing? And then we cut, and she's not there. And then later we hear the bulletin about the body of a woman who maybe psychologist so and so Rayleigh was found. Right. And we're supposed to think that, oh, well, he's about to strangle her. Oh, he did strangle her. Oh, she's dead. And nobody thinks that. Like, what? why is that misdirect in there? Why I don't remember that? this. No, I, and right. I had forgotten it uh, That's my until we watched it again. And then I watched it actually two and a half times this week. Maybe um, because – And when I watched it with Alexander, she's like, did for. he kill him? And Or did she kill – did he kill her? And I was like, I honestly don't remember Maybe it's uh, – that's why there's not an APB out on her is because they think that she's dead, but it's a coincidence. 
and so it buys them time, which seems kind of boring. Yeah, yeah no, I think it's really to just meant to to, to make us dramatic tension. Just, he's yeah. crazy enough to do it. But something I liked about the movie that didn't occur to me the first time I watched it was the fact that, um, and it's kind of a subtle effect, but the fact that he's the only person who survives to the future in the movie. Like, he's the only character who's also in the future. Like, Brad Pitt's dead, Christopher Plummer's dead, Madeline Stowe's dead. Like, they're, none, of, you, none of them still exist. And so you get a sense of, like, yeah, it's a pretty bad play because it killed off all the characters except for the child. <laughs> but his parents John, John Seda survives, right? Unless he's from the future. Well, no. Everybody who we see in the early part of the movie, who's presumably over a certain age, uh, survived. The oh, I thought. Wait, who's the uh, guy with the teeth? The weird guy. Guy with the what? The, oh, so that's another oh, thing. Is what's the deal with the, the old the right. voice? Yeah. What is that guy? I guess yeah. he's supposed to make make Bruce Willis think he's maybe insane. But what's his motivation? And who is it's he? Just that's. I'm assuming he's another guy from the future who's who was another agent who who got away from them successfully by pulling. Oh no! But it, so is he then whispering to Bruce Willis through the walls? Yes. How? And why? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kelly. That one a little exactly. That is yeah. That's actually the one I really can't figure out. Um, but I'm assuming it's Terry Gilliam's Greek chorus or something. <laughs> oh, that's because he doesn't have a plot function. At all. Right, right, yeah. He doesn't even give him the gun, even though he could have. But I guess it's like, I guess he's supposed to be Bruce Willis's, uh, I don't know. So here's what here's what uh, Josh Lubliner says. Uh, He he wrote a really extensive uh, thing, um, uh, a really extensive email, uh, which has a really – a great amount of uh, analysis in it. I really love Josh's email. Um, but one of the things he says is he was always confused by the voice when the calls call Bob, you know, old Bob. He first heard the voice after returning to the future in 1990. Right. He later meets the owner of the voice in 1996. What is going on there? Why would he hallucinate the voice of a guy he hadn't met yet? That doesn't make sense, even if he's crazy and time travel isn't real. The first time he meets the owner of the voice, he seems very explicitly to be from the future also. But later, when Dr. Rayleigh talks to him, he doesn't seem to have any idea what she's talking about. Right. Um, Maybe he is Brad Pitt in the future. Well, that, yeah, that was kind of another idea. And, and there's this, there, there is this suggested. wonderful thing that I noticed when, when I watched it with, uh, with Markinson, uh, because uh, of the way the um, speaker setup is in the living room, it, it shifts from channel to channel. The voice moves around. As the, Wait, you watched this with Markardson? Yeah, he's visiting us, so I got to I got to see it with him. Um, so it so the voice actually moves from channel to channel. It moves from ear to ear, and it's a very weird sort of dissonant thing. Um, but I don't know what that guy is supposed to be either. Uh, I don't think Terry Gilliam knows. I'm not even sure David Webb Peoples knows. Madeline Stone hmm. knows though. <laughs> I'll say. All right, so. Uh, Nick, Nick D has uh, questions uh, about what you guys think about the productions uh, production design for the scene set in the future. Did it feel like a set? I like scene? it. It's the well, best part of the movie. I mean, it, when Terry's Terry Gilliam in very comfortable territory, yeah, uh, he's very so. exacting and demanding in terms of what he wants, and he delivers. The fact that he has 
and it's maybe four seconds of footage that he put a lion up there on that library. <laughs> like the fact that yeah. he went to all that trouble. It's beautiful <laughs> stuff. The idea that uh, in the future it lo- you look like an astronaut in a plastic wrap when you're going yeah. out as a hazmat suit. Like this all of that it. stuff looks great. I love the design of the – as Kelly Wong calls it, the barber chair and the, the Foley mic with the, the TV screens on it. Like that stuff looks great. It's from Brazil, feels like. Uh, it's totally, yeah, it's totally it's the very Brazil Brazilian, stuff, yeah. which is yeah. why, too, partly when we get a then, oh, mismatched couple on the lamb thriller. Yeah. I'm disappointed. You can feel wanna, Terry getting bored. Yeah, right, exactly right. I want to go back to him <laughs> in territory where he's very comfortable and where he's at his best. And, and I don't remember where I saw this. I meant to look for it. But there's a shot where uh, Bruce Willis has come down from – uh, the the surface and he's been scrubbed down and then he's in a chair and he's getting some sort of an injection or either they're taking his blood or they're injecting him and then it pulls back and there's a shot of him in the chair and off to the right of the frame there's a bunch of stuff in a like translucent wall with light behind it and I saw somewhere or read somewhere or heard a director's commentary that it took them forever to get that one shot it's two seconds of footage in uh in in 12 monkeys that one shot because of the many many things in the wall on the right side of the frame and there's you know there's like a dozen 15 elements over there yeah one of them is a hamster wheel and terry gilliam wouldn't he 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 wanted a shot where you could see the hamster running in the wheel and he kept shooting over and over again until someone could get the stupid hamster to run. And if it wouldn't run, he would cut. He would let them get the hamster running. He would start. And if the hamster stopped, like he wanted to make sure you could see the hamster in profile running in the wheel. And it's literally like barely a fingernail size on a big old huge screen. And it's just how exacting and demanding mm-hmm. he is. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with getting that lion up on a building. Like the fact that that's two seconds of footage, two shots, that's beautiful. That looks amazing. And it's just Terry Gilliam being demanding, expecting a lot, and creating a lot. And it's just so much rich detail. I love, love, love that part of 12 Monkeys. Yeah. yeah. I totally agree with you because as, I wa- as I've watched this a couple of times this week, I got the sense that there's – there. Well, it seems like these frames are crammed with so much information, so many of them. There's so much graffiti on, like, buses and and walls, and there's papers everywhere. All of those weird screens that do feel like they're reported directly from Brazil, especially if you watch Brazil again. There's, like, those weird magnifying screens and that ball that comes forward that looks like the torture ball from Star Wars. Um, I I just – I increasingly get the feeling that He's so smart that there's nothing wasted in those. There, there's nothing that's that's um, accidental. That everything that he puts in those frames and what you said about the hamster wheel makes perfect sense. I didn't even know that story because kind of makes sense based on kind of the idea of the movie. Uh, I don't think that. Yeah, yeah right. Wastes, exactly. Thing is, he had a thematic yeah. reason for wanting that. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't yeah. think he wastes any space when he's shooting things in in this movie. Um, and and that's why I think it bears repeated viewing, even with the things that are frustrating about it. Uh, but then you got to sit through all that couple on the lamb stuff. And ninety, yeah. But it's balanced yeah. dough. Balanced dough. Balanced here's dough. here's another thing that I'm not sure that I I I mean it's very Gilliam, and I appreciate what he's going for, but I don't think it 
I think it's a little dated. Uh, all the insane asylum stuff. I mean, I'm. It, it's fun and wacky, and there's cartoon sound effects, and you know, this is post One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and it's just like, hey, people in insane asylums are wacky and goofy, and. I'm not real crazy about that. Well, and it's stuff. all misdirection, so most of the movie is irrelevant. Well, you, know? you say it's misdirection, Kelly Wan, but I love the idea that uh, – because they talk about it as, as part of, and it's part of this idea of, of Cassandra, that a prophet right. who is really legitimately warning us of something is not believed and is furthermore right. thought With to be crazy eyes. and thrown in an insane asylum. And I love right. that idea, but he's just doing crazy, wacky – uh, crazy people are funny, kind of stuff. Which yeah. I'm, I'm not crazy about that. That's like, Why aren't you just offended that like he Fisher makes King. fun of you as a gamer? Because he says, you know, if you play games, you're willingly uh, tranquilizing I, yourself. Uh, no, <laughs> not, not at all. No, mo- no more so than I love that he calls out what it's like to watch a movie a second time. Ah, because I do that a lot. Like he, he is Mar- Madeline Stowe. Marilyn Stowe. Madeline Stowe has that little bit at the end where she's like, well, maybe it's like watching a movie a second time. Uh. Oh, I, I actually loved that. I, I loved that that little sequence where she says that because you change. Uh, and I had a professor right. in college who talked about, uh, you know, it was a it was a English class where he was getting us to read Oedipus Rex, and he said, "I read this every year because the play doesn't change, but you do, and this is an important play to me." I mean, I don't know why Oedipus was the one that he wanted us to read. And why he reads that every year, but his point about the fact that this thing remains the same, but you change, uh, was echoed in this. Do you know the connection uh, to Oedipus Rex in this? Um, No. Uh, I I think it's the the red herring in this movie is very clearly an Oedipus Rex. Uh, Because Oedipus Rex, by the way, it's it's in it a plague that's visited on him. Who did these horrible things to our city? Oh, it was me. Well, you can reduce it to a Woody Allen joke, right? But that's the yeah. whole point of, of Oedipus Rex. Oedipus Rex is arguably the beginning of detective fiction because yeah. there's a mystery, and then you reveal that at the heart of the mystery is the detective, the actual investigator. Yeah. And in this case, there's a bit where Bruce Willis believes that he gave Brad Pitt the idea to infect the world. Right, uh, right. In the same way that Oedipus Rex is being – the city is being cursed because of his – because of what he did. And that's part well, of the that classic – in classic detective fiction is the detective discovers that the plot isn't just about a city. It's about him or something that he did or his own sin. Um, And I love when – and that's why I'm kind of disappointed that it ends up being, oh, it's David Morse's weird. uh, That I kind of wished that it had been this idea of a time loop that he created the plague that destroyed humanity. I love that idea, Uh, but that's not – that's a, that's the misdirect here. That's a really great uh, redirection of what I was saying, Tom. I really like that you made that, and I didn't I didn't catch that at all. I love I love that. Yeah. That's really cool. See, if they'd watch Psycho, you'd go, "Oh, it's a misdirect." Instead of hair so, uh, something else that Markinson says, and this is something that we both noticed when we watched it, is Bruce Willis saying the line, "All I see are dead people." <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's kind of unfortunate, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so this comes uh, before. Six cents. Six cents. So yeah, it's a good thing he doesn't say anything about something being the size of Texas, because that would really <laughs> seal the deal. <laughs> right. Although they both have numbers in the title. And he also doesn't say yippee Kaye. I'm glad that that doesn't happen in this movie. It was before his voice changed, because now he, Bruce Willis always looks grouchy, like he's annoyed that he still has to keep making dumb movies. Like he looks uh, bored, tired. Kelly, well, that's called getting old. 
No, I know, but in the in this movie, his voice has range and stuff. It's well, like it's like, it's like it's old like, Al Pacino, a new Al Pacino. Well, it's also part of why I think Diggs and I like his performance in this. Is it's not it's not him getting Smoky. hung up on his image and what he's going to become. Yeah. him trying something right, different right. and new, and yeah, it's really different and new, and I like that. Like I like that it's he's yeah. he's cast in it. He's in a Terry uh, Gilliam. He's in one Terry Gilliam movie. So we oh, that's right. Yeah, didn't end up being someone who collaborated. It's not like a giant. Yeah, they never device. worked together again. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> Uh, Chris Webb, our, one of our listeners, uh, doesn't care for Bruce Willis in this, so he's going to be the dissenting opinion. And what he he's says is, "I think Willis is to me what McQueen is to Tom." I was just going to say, I wonder if it's like, if it's like me with Steve McQueen, where I'm like, I see Steve McQueen, I don't understand why people think it's cool. Maybe people see this who aren't into Bruce Willis and don't care that Bruce Willis is doing something different. Like maybe it's like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he I, says is his he even and I, I don't get this. I totally disagree with uh, with Webb on this. Is he, he says his sequence in Pulp Fiction was always a real drag to me. What? No way. That's the high how, point. Yeah, my, how could it be a drag when there's so little of it? I mean, it's just such a yeah. minor part of Pulp Fiction. And also, he does a lot of funny. That's that's where Pulp Fiction was at its high point. I thought is the Bruce Willis stuff, wasn't it? Am I dumb? Am I the only one who no, that? you're not dumb. I, I I agree with you, but uh, but Chris Webb is. I think he's much younger than we are, and uh, doesn't have our affinity for. Uh, he didn't grow up with moonlighting like we did. Well, and I love that he brought up the Steve McQueen thing too. So Bruce yeah. Willis is very definitely of a generation, and I imagine. Yeah, Steve McQueen. I mean, I remember going to Die Hard One to make fun of it because I go, Bruce Willis is an action. <laughs> yeah, me movie. too. Me too. Yeah. And then I sat there going, Oh my God, I got to make everyone I know is come and see this movie. That's exactly what happened to me. It's yeah. exactly what happened to me. I was it's, like, I'm just prepared to hate this guy and hate this yeah. movie, but I'm going to go see it because, you know, there's nothing else to see, and it's the the huge thing to go see. And I had the same okay. reaction that you just described. Yeah, Bruce. Yeah, and then it's the best action movie ever made, and it stars <laughs> Bruce Willis. And you come out of going, wait, I have to tell people this now. <laughs> and he's it's like, like before Ghostbusters, and I go, wait, Bill Murray's really funny on it. <laughs> Like I thought that whole emotional monologue that he does in the bathroom when he's talking to Al, uh, and I'm like, oh. and you know, as a kid, I was not. Yeah. I was a kid. I was a, you know, just about going to college. Um, I was like, wow, he can really pull this monologue off. It's not yeah. bad. I love this character. He carries his pain with him very well. He's right. tough, but he's and he's funny, and he's also like scared. He's not afraid to be a little bit vulnerable. Um, so he does so many things in that movie that I really loved. But I think that that people of a certain generation had that had had that experience of seeing it in a the theater, and I think that's a little different than somebody think, who might watch like a little bit here and a little bit there. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's such a non Bruce Willis role that that's what draws me to it. And it's it like casting him as part of the misdirection too. Like everything's ah. misdirection, and so that's what. To, that's why it's kind of a weird movie to evaluate, is because the first time you watch it's going to be way different from every other viewing, because you know what you're seeing in the first shot. While well, the first time you watch it, you're like, wait, what, who's the woman? Who's I mean, it right. can't be Bruce because of this. Right. So then you're stuck with the story, what what Tom's talking about, and them on the lamb. Like that's all you have in subsequent viewings but so that's a, yeah that's a lot of what you have like i could watch the yeah. early bits with the, the the dystopian future i could watch that stuff right but then you just watch brazil you wouldn't exactly just watch brazil i'm in a terry gilliam mood i'm gonna pop in 12 monkeys like no one ever says that um or i'm in a bruce willis mood i'll pop in 12 monkeys. <laughs> but 
it's I, uh, it's not like other movies. I have a it's true or false like question for you guys. Yes. True or false? It is never a good idea to have an accordion in your soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. False. Dingus, it's, what's your answer? I love this soundtrack. Are you kidding? It's oh, great. It's false. Nope, you guys are both wrong. It's true. It's never a good idea to have an accordion in soundtrack. <laughs> you don't like that music? I, you know you what like it is? It's, so, it's too circusy. And I, I no, guess maybe that's part of the point of it, but I, just, I don't. It's it's I don't want to zither in third man either. I'm just like, <laughs> don't quit putting your weird instruments in the soundtracks that call attention to themselves. I always love weird. Come on, the Exorcist bells. You well, it is supposed that's to be. Not, that's not a weird instrument. That's super perfect. weird. Also, by the way, that music existed. The, the 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 tubular bells existed before the Exorcist, so that's fine. It's not yeah. like it's not like William Friedkin was like, give me somebody ringing a bell. He, he, no, I know, but then it's like set over just her walking through some leaves. Yeah, there is, a, it's there's awesome. a circus element to it, and there is a know, Ferris yeah. wheel kind of a feel to it. I mean, I, it, you know, in that hospital. Yeah, you know what, Dingus, if you use the, yeah, that whole, like comparing it to like a Ferris wheel or a fair, that makes perfect sense, just like the hamster wheel. So It's creepy. Right. Like he's making, he's going, I can make accordion music creepy. The same way Aronofsky, so, I can make you like a Jared Leto movie. In the, in the hospital scene when they're in bed at night, and and you know he's eating the spider and Brad Pitt's like climbing over beds. Uh, I I still haven't frozen the frame, but there's twelve beds around there, right? Twelve monkeys, twelve beds. So it's twelve points on count clock. Them. I assume is, is it, right. I think. So. Oh, oh, right. It's a time travel movie. Get it? Yeah. Oh, that's why twelve monkeys. The whole time I was wondering, well, does monkeys. he ever explain? This is one of the things I wanted to watch out for this viewing. Does he ever explain what? Why is it 12 monkeys? I think you guys have cracked the code. Well, Dingus did by accident, asking us what it meant. Oh, is that where you were going, Dingus, with the clock? The idea that yeah. there was a clock? Yeah, because I Dingus think that the hospital room is a clock, and that's that's sort of part of what's going on mentally for him. And it's time. So, yeah, I think you're right. I like 12 monkeys, Tom. Shoot, that's a good it's one. too good. There's too much good so, to get about you to not Nick like. Nick D., on that point, Nick D., I, and I, I think we had somebody else who asked this too, who – Who's saying that? Um, is this? Is there supposed to be a misdirection about the idea that it's not a time travel movie and it's just paranoia, or is it not? So Nick D's um, uh, argument with the movie basically is that uh, the suspensions come from the fact that the main character knows the truth, but nobody believes him. But Gilliam took it in a different direction, sucked the suspense out and built a sort of weird fragmented nightmare about paranoia. Uh, do you think that there's any sort of misdirection there? Or, I mean, is, is any of that part of this? I mean, it, it's, it's very clear, and I forget who said this. One of our other listeners said this, because, you know, the, the printout at the beginning of the movie says right. this is what happened. Right. That's what I was thinking, because right. you're told right away. Yeah, I don't think there's any misdirection there, but I think there is something poignant about at a certain point Bruce Willis wanting to opt out of his role as a Cassandra and just tell himself he's mad. Like that's that's a cool mm. thing. You know, prophets traditionally throughout history they don't want to be stuck with that role. That's it's, yeah. it's a burden. And I, I think there's something uh. poignant about Bruce Willis really wishing that he was just insane. And I don't think that's a misdirection it, so much as a as a as a character development, which that I that feeling I never did. goes away. He never knows like a. Like Vertigo and Fat Stabato is the only happiness he gets in the movie. Yeah, yeah. It's not like it all works out for him in the end, which actually goes against what narrative's supposed to be. Like it's supposed to be, oh, fail, 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 success at the end. Like 
Charles Dickens. Well, there are little moments of pleasure for him. And this is a a small thing. And I think this is something that Markinson said, you know, sort of feathering off of the idea of our, I think we had a smell uh, three by three. There's a moment where he smells her hair and and he, and and he's like, Oh my God, your hair. (laughs) You need a moment, Kelly. Go on, Dingus, go on. But he's also smelling the air. He's like, I love the air. I love the air. That's her hair. He's still smelling when he says that. Maybe. (laughs) Along those lines, I I really wish they hadn't kissed. Yeah. Really? I just like the tension of of them and the the, how sad it is if he hadn't kissed her. Uh, If they if if he hadn't, I mean, obviously he's into her. Obviously she softens to him. I I don't. I I mean, getting a kiss is something that you get when you're going to live happily ever after, and. I, I just like, you know, in, in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, the fact that they never kiss or there's never any, you know, there's one incidental touch. But, like, I think it's more tragic and it's more sad if they if they never realize their ex- – if they never express fully their affection for each other. And it's always, like, restrained and held back and there's that missed kiss. A missed kiss is more poignant than a kiss and then you die. Uh, you know, I, I, I feel like – I feel exactly the same way because I felt that way about – Moonlighting, I felt that way about uh, X Files, <laughs> um, and when I was, I, <laughs> Wait, I actually they kiss in X Files. They eventually get together, and you're you Mulder know, and Scully hook up in X Files. I think so. I no. I kind of lost interest by that. That's lame. I that thought can't be true. I didn't even think they were attracted to each other. That no, there was always an "is you is, is you ain't" kind of a thing. That is weird to me. If they if they if they mack on each other in X Files, I'm super disappointed. I don't know the fans needed it. Did you wow. say Mac? Yeah, wow. that's how the kids talk these days. Uh, that's what they call kissing. When I, I showed my kid um, Edge of Tomorrow, which I refuse to call anything else but Edge of Tomorrow. Me too. Me too. Um, at the end, when they're in the Louvre, uh, he's like, please don't let them kiss. Please don't let them kiss. Give uh, him two more years. He'll yeah. want them. <laughs> <laughs> I felt bad enough for Bruce Willis's character that I'm glad he gets a little stow in. Oh, Kelly Wan, that's so sweet. Oh. Kelly Wan always half glass half full. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's so screwed anyway. And it's Madeline Stowe. It's the one good thing it is life at that point. I really need to go watch Bless the so, Mohicans now. Like, I haven't seen that in maybe a couple of And times. Revenge. It's really good. I've never seen Revenge, the Kevin Costner thing. Uh, is that like Tony Scott or something? Yeah, it's Tony Scott. Oh, but she, God, it's got to be she's terrible. Very, it's, it is super bad, but she's so fun. Great. She's very Madeline Stowe. It's super like. hot. All and right, there's good it. sex stuff in it. And she doesn't yeah. get she doesn't have enough sex in movies for my money. Can't imagine why. Yeah. You know what though? I never saw Bad Girls and I kinda wanna watch it. I don't even know it. what you're talking it's, about. What is Bad Girls? It's, it's the, a Western. It's the female Western. Oh yeah, yeah that's right. It had Sharon Stone, I think. And McDowell. No, Sharon Stone's quick in the dead. She's not in Bad Girls. Oh, sorry. Wow, but, dang it, you got pwned. I forget who the fourth bad girl is. Dingus thought Sharon Stone was in Bad Girls. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. I didn't even know what Bad Girls was, so. I forget uh, the, the, other, the other woman was Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> no, it's Val Kilmer. He's playing Wyatt Earp in that. Come on, you guys. His hair smells you. dreamy. <laughs> I'll be your Blueberry Hill. <laughs> Dingus. Kelly Wan, did you, get, did you hear that one? So brazen. <laughs> Harry Stewart Masterson. Who I also was. Oh my god, wow. All Ooh, right. She's a bad guy. All right. She thought she looked, man. is far to, like she was of nineties. Mr. Madison's way too tomboyish, Kelly Wand. Yeah. But it's so I mean if that's your thing. Okay, no, I'll I'll check out Bad Girls, I'll watch Revenge. 
uh, and definitely three or four more viewings of The Last of the Mohicans. In the, in I heard she's future. in 12 Monkeys, but I haven't watched that TV series, and it sounds oh, like a terrible wait, idea for a TV series. Wait a minute. Madeline Stowe is in the TV series. But not as herself. She's like a 1950s character or something. What? Well, they, they pop around right? in all kinds of different time periods? It's not a sequel. Yeah, they did a from dust. No, I, I watched the first two episodes of it, and I just can't abide the lead actor in that. It just doesn't work for me. Um, yeah, I want to see other actors in Twelve Monkeys. <laughs> I agree with you. Well, you know that the the TV series was just and this shows. Like I think solo. when you when you start watching it, they just hitched the Twelve Monkeys license on it. Like it was it was yeah. just some random time travel drama, st- and yeah, so the work. studio had the rights to Twelve Monkeys, and they were like, well, what if we call it Twelve Monkeys and we change some names? Uh, and that's that's how that happened. Like Terminator. Terminator was something else that, before it became Terminator. No, but the, the, the they made series. a TV series out of a premise that's very resolvable in two hours. Like no, right. But what I'm saying is, with Twelve Monkeys, they they were they were putting together. It was called Splinters. They were putting together a time travel series. And at some point during its production, somebody came up with, hey, we have the rights to 12 monkeys. Let's just change some things around and then call it 12 monkeys. It was already in production. Um, Like Starship Troopers. I'm thinking more like the sequel to Open Water, like Open Water (laughs) 2, where they're going to make a show about some people who jump in a boat out of the boat and forget to lower the ladder and drown. And at some point in the production, they're like, let's call this Open Water 2. Adrift. That was oh, does it, does it really have that subtitle? Yeah. Kelly yeah. Wand, that's good that you know that. That's important knowledge. Good. It's not yeah. good, but yeah, I do know it. Anyway, Madeline All right. Stowe, let's go. Uh, real let's quick, let's go around the table. You can only pick one Terry Gilliam movie. All the rest of them, because there's not room for many more movies in the future. We're going to have to shut down a bunch of them. We can only keep one Terry Gilliam movie for the future. And guess what? It can't be Brazil. What do you do? Uh, Go around the table. What do you do? Yeah. Dingus, you go first. One Terry Gilliam movie can be preserved for the future. It can't be Brazil. What do you do? Um, I'm going to choose Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Wait, what are you giggling about? That doesn't count. Yeah, Dingus doesn't. Wait, yeah, he didn't direct that. He directed it. He co-directed it with Terry Jones. And then they – and then the rest of the troop went, let's just do Jones, okay? <laughs> Although they did. I think Dingus can do that then. If, if he's got a directing credit. He does. They said Terry Jones was better. They liked him more, and they said he he would always direct for the – so he got the joke. But they liked the Terry Gilliam stuff because he said it made it look more like a movie. Like he had a better visual eye than Terry Jones. But Terry Jones was like more – That does make sense though. And then by the way, he was that's always why I doing – Brian. And he was always doing visual stuff for Monty Python. So, yeah. Right. All right. Well, here's the problem, though, with Dingus's answer. Mine's dumber than Dingus's in a way. Oh, I don't know how you can get dumber than that, because what Dingus has now done <laughs> is all future generations are just going to remember Terry Gilliam as some Monty Python goofball. They're not going to yeah, have any no. sense for his dystopian genius and his production uh, value. It's, if you take Dingus, Brazil. Right. But uh, Well, never mind. Okay, well, that Dingus is going with Holy Grail. I think he did that mainly to grief me, by the way, too, Kelly Wand. All right, Kelly. No, one one just, Terry Gilliam so movie. Much for- pleasure out of watching Holy Grail every time I watch it. I know it. I know it drives you nuts, um, but I had a roommate in college who could recite the whole movie. And there's a there's this soundtrack of the movie 
that has all these different skits on it that he used to play on a cassette tape of all things. Um, and that scene with the guards guarding the prince. I mean, I don't remember. How did that things, go? Can you do some of that scene for me, Dingus? What's the guards guarding the prince? It's no, like, some hello, is that a coconut? No, it's not a coconut. It's a sparrow. Oh. Right. And then they chop his arms off and he's lying there bleeding. And he's like, just you just flush. wounded me a little. I'm just a little bit hurt. Uh, and then there's these princesses who are like, we're going to spank you, Robin. Oh, and then and then this guy farts from the wall. Yeah, that, I remember that. That was funny. Uh, they spanked Galahad, by the way. <laughs> All right, Kelly Wand, one Terry Gilliam movie that's not Brazil can be preserved for future generations. <laughs> what do you pick? Uh, I'm probably the only person who would pick this. Um, but I would say Jabberwocky. No, well, haven't you just done a Holy Grail then? Yeah, it was his follow-up to it, and it's got Michael Palin in it as the lead, and it's kind of it feels like Holy. It's like a more retarded Holy Grail. Why don't you at least meet some halfway between his Jabberwocky Holy Grail stuff and his brilliant dystopian stuff in his later career, and choose Time Bandits? Why don't you do that? Yeah. Oh, Time Bandits is a good choice. Actually. Is Time Bandits before or after Jabberwocky? After. It's after because uh, he had a bunch definitely of after. I mean, I, I think of Time Bandits as the first Terry Gilliam movie that's not yeah. a Monty Python joint. And even even it still has yeah. plenty of Python-esque and stuff. And John in Cleese it. is in it as Robin Hood. Right, joint. right, exactly. But it's sort of like there are Monty Python appearances in it, but it's very much still at that point it's a Terry Gilliam movie. Like I think it's the yeah, it's kind of the true. birth of his career. I think. I think because it has it because it's technically a kids movie and there's a kid as the main star and some of the dwarves are annoying. I don't know. It's pretty good. I love that ending. I love that last shot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that's also Terry Gilliam. Like for a kids movie, that's pretty freaking bleak. Yeah, it's yeah, the it's a very bleak, bleak movie. The sickest kids movie ever, except for possibly Willy Wonka. But, but part, part of this is my experience watching Time Bandits was a little bit scarring. Whereas my experience watching – Well, that makes uh, me want to pick it more. Yeah, that's <laughs> totally understandable. Yeah. Yeah. I remember thinking – I remember being kind of bewildered by Time Bandits when I saw it as a kid, though. Like it grew on me later. Well, somebody chose it – like we had a youth, like a youth group at my and church, like a youth yeah. retreat. Like it wasn't even a retreat. It was just a bunch of people in the youth group who were spending the night in the basement of the church and watching movies. And uh, and my mom was one of the leaders of the group, and somebody had chosen Time Bandits. And my mom's just sitting there with her arms crossed going, this looks like a Ringo Starr movie. I don't yeah. even know what she meant by that, but she kept saying, this is a Ringo Starr movie. I remember and, when the Cowboys show up. I went, Ugh, what? Boom. <laughs> I just remember Sorry. being embarrassed and, and feeling weird watching it with my mom and my youth oh, group in a church. Uh, I don't know. That sounds memorable to me, Dingus. I got to be honest. Oh, it's very memorable, but it was memorable in a negative, weird way. It right. reminds me of when I, I saw Diner with my grandma, my really strict <laughs> grandma, no fun grandma, and. And we had to walk out. And then we went to Raiders of the Lost Ark from that. But there was a preview for Zapped before it and, like, all these exploding tits. And I was watching with my grandma. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it was a wow. different time, I guess. Different There's time. a lot there to parse. I love that. There was no story in it. That's what she said. Tom, about do you remember the first time you saw Time Bandits? I'm sure it was in the theaters. I didn't watch it with the yeah. church group. I'm positive that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the well, stuff I like with Time Bandits didn't work for me as a kid. And now, I don't know. Tom's, it's probably, Time Bandits is probably the solid choice. Jabberwocky. Yeah, I think Tom wins this round. Yeah. Oh, I'm not choosing Time Bandits, though. I would, oh, I would you're not. 
No, here's I would refuse. You're going to choose Tideland, I would guess. Uh, yeah. If, if, if it was something that I was going to watch over and over again, it would be Timeland or Fear and Loathing. But I would Arthur. refuse the premise and choose Brazil anyway. Wait a minute, you're yeah. <laughs> um, you're a damn fool. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I'm picking Brazil. I just refuse the yeah. premise. I will not allow Brazil to be ruled out. I, there's, it's arbitrary. There's no reason for it, and I'm picking Brazil. Do not accept. Well, guess what? <laughs> you accidentally picked the Love Conquers All version to take with you, and you oh, dude, yeah. oh. oh, he got me, Kelly Wad. I can't believe that. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm. You know, there's a Criterion edition that has uh, that just. I guess because they were they had extra room on or an extra DVD to press or whatever that has that Love Conquers All version, and I just I feel a little dirty owning it. Yeah, I don't. I don't want that in this house. Get that out of here. <laughs> so I, I went through my Brazil DVDs because I wanted to watch some of it again, and I was like, "Which one is the one you're supposed to watch?" Because I was thinking of it the same way you think about the the um, the Blade Runner ones, <laughs> and I and I pulled them out and I looked at the back of it, and the back of the Love Conquers All one says. This is the one Terry Gilliam does not want you to watch. <laughs> it should have a warning label like a pack of cigarettes on it. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, when you, assume a sermon, though. Uh, when you talk about the, uh, the, the use of Blueberry Hill in, in 12 Monkeys, I think very much of the use of the song Brazil in Brazil. It's just an inconsequential, goofy song. Yeah. Uh, but it means so much in the context of the movie. Right. Uh, you know, when, when Frank Sinatra did it, it was just this jazzy little piece about a hot chick he met in South America. And to take that silly and inconsequential a song and just saddle it with the weight of this yeah. dystopian horror movie in which everything is crushed and turns to shit, this just bleakly yeah. existential statement written by Tom Stoppard, and to hook Brazil mm-hmm. onto it is so incredibly subversive. I love that it has that inconsequential song in there. And, I, and I, I, you know, it's great that he loves Blueberry Hill, but when I hear that, I'm just like, yeah, I remember when Terry Gilliam used that dippy Brazil song. That's a grandma church group movie. For me, uh, it's it's how how frightening michael palin's character is yeah he's great um he he's just so dark and i you know he's he's so i know him from a a a couple different things like he doesn't like travel stuff i think and uh but he can be goofy but he's so he's so weirdly cheerfully dark he's supposedly the most amiable of the of the monty python guys like they all agreed like he's the nice one like when they were when they were debating the the angry religious people after life of Brian and Michael Palin was getting it like pissed off during one of them. They're like, that's weird for him. Like he was, he was really mad. Like to ever see Michael Palin get mad is weird. Well, he does these wonderful videos and I'm addicted to like things like cooking shows and travel videos. And like Ewan McGregor does this great, uh, he wrote a book with his friend where he rode a motorcycle around the world. Basically Michael yeah. Palin does these travel videos where, where he just, he did, he did these whole series of videos where he would do different travels and he's just, he's just such a joy to watch. And then watching him like turn around and have like a, a bloody handprint on his yeah. uh, on his smock Kids and he's just so he's so frightening uh but so amiably i mean he's so cheerfully frightening i love john cleese that. you can picture doing it john cleese would have been the obvious choice for that right part. and he's great in that he's and so to tom's point about music uh, i feel the same way about michael palin i mean yeah. i feel like it's used properly in brazil 
it's genius of Terry Gilliam. Too bad we can't take it to the island unless we're Tom because we cheat. Not an island. It's the future, and you guys, yeah, I don't know. You guys are oh, really yeah. into Holy Grail and time. That's fine, but I've <laughs> I've done I've given the future a gift that you guys withheld from them. That's <laughs> disappointed in both of you. Have you uh, seen listeners? Jabberwock? If you guys can think of any movies that have an audition scene that you like. <laughs> We want to hear about it because next week we are going to talk about audition scenes in movies for our monthly 3 by 3 episode. Uh, if you have any picks, send those before midnight, April 1st, uh, to 3x3 at com, and we'll read about those on the air, and we'll talk about our own picks. And then uh, in the following months, there aren't that many movies opening, really, that we care about. It's just mm-hmm. really small profile Shame. stuff. I can't. Let's do another raffle. Let's just might do as well, we... yeah. I mean, until, I guess, what, Christmas? Probably we should watch True one. Detective again and do that. Marty. I guess it's TV. Oh. That's right. <laughs> Spring Steven, break. Steven Spielberg says that shouldn't be nominated for Best Picture. It's on Netflix, Dingus. It's not a movie. Yeah. Nope. So join us for our auditions next week. Thank you guys so much for listening to us talk about a super old movie. Thank you so much again for participating in our fundraiser. And uh, congratulations to the inimitable, beautiful, talented, and Hmm. kind Chris Markinson who won this year. We couldn't be happier for the fella. He's our Madeline Stowe. Oh, Kelly (laughs) Wand. Yeah. Too soon. Uh, Too soon. Uh So join us next week. I'm Tom Chick. I've been here with Christian Marnowski. It's Christian Marnowski. And Kelly Wand. If I have twin boys, I want to name one after the exorcist priest and one after the omen kid so that they're both named Damien. So Pretty Woman, uh, she's eating a croissant and it turns into a pancake. That's another continuity error I forgot to mention. I prefer that we be more capable and prepared than lucky. Observation, reflection, faith, and determination. In this way, we may navigate the path as it unfolds before us. All right, And we have, what, eight more recharge cycles to go before we get to Aurigai 6? Is that a question, yes, sir? Yes, Walter, that's a question. That is correct. That's Bruce Willis's leg! Look, you were right. I am mentally ill. Hmm. Well, that explains everything. Especially that Holy Grail pick.